Welcome to uh, Legal Tech Week for November 20th, 2020, uh, in which we discuss the weeks, or maybe the last two weeks, because we weren't here last week, top stories in the legal tech and innovation world. I am Bob Ambrogi. I write the blog Law Sites and have the podcast Law Next. And our kind of usual suspect panelists here today are... Victoria, you want to introduce yourself, start off? Hey everyone, my name is Victoria Hutchins. I'm based in Philadelphia and I write for ALM's Legal Tech News publication, where I write mo mostly about legal tech news and the intersection of law and technology. And Joe? Uh, Joe Patrice from uh, Above the Law and the podcast Thinking Like a Lawyer, I suppose. Uh, and uh, yeah, no, I'm glad, happy to be here. Uh, it's been a fun week. Um, I is, am I leaking? I don't I want to make sure I'm not. <laughs> uh, Victor, introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Victor Lee. I'm assistant managing editor with the ABA Journal. I cover the business of law and technology. And I, I promise not to make any of my cousin Vinny references during this uh, during this <laughs> session, but you know, I don't know about the whole sweating, sweating uh, hair dye thing. I might I might have to uh, I might have to take the fifth on that one. We don't know if it's hair dye yet, right? Uh, Zach. Hey, everybody. I'm Zach Warren. I'm editor-in-chief of ALM's Legal Tech News, based here out of Minneapolis. And am I the only one who hasn't really watched My Cousin Vinny? I don't think I could make a My Cousin Vinny reference <laughs> if I tried, if I'm being quite honest. Yeah, you're the only one. Uh, Nikki? I am Nikki Black, the legal technology evangelist with my case. Law practice management software. I um, and as my title suggests, I try to help lawyers understand and use technology um, in part through writing articles on different publications, including the ABA Journal, Above the Law, Daily Record here in Rochester, New York, which is where I'm based, and um, the My Case blog. And I prepped for this by rubbing deodorant all around my hairline, so I think I'm gonna be good. We'll see. <laughs> And let's see, Steve. Steve Embry, I <clears throat> write the blog Tech Law Crossroads. And uh, I guess I have graduated from a guest panelist to a regular panelist. So thank you very much. Be, I really enjoy it. <laughs> Whether that's a distinction or a dubious distinction, we don't know. But, uh... <laughs> you know I was going to say it might fall under the, under the heading, no good deed goes unrewarded. <laughs> exactly, right. Uh, and last but not least, Molly. Molly McDonough. I'm a media consultant. I produce uh, Legal Talk Today for the Legal Talk Network and am the forder, former editor and publisher of the ABA Journal. And Caroline Hill is not able to be with us today because she said the week in legal tech wore her down and she, <laughs> she's tired. It's late over there in the UK right now. Um, and... Uh, just by way of an announcement, we we now have an official hashtag. Nikki, you want to introduce our official hashtag? <laughs> well, I, I I initially chose a hashtag and tweeted it, and then thought maybe I better research the hashtag and see if anyone uses it. And it was an active hashtag in legal tech. I initially chose LT Roundtable, and apparently that's taken in legal tech of all things. So I changed it to. BA roundtable because it's Bob Ambrosi's roundtable. So, but it turned out it looks a lot like Bar Own Table, but that's our official hashtag. <laughs> bar Own Table. 
Yeah. Whoops. I did that. Though. Yeah. I think that's what, I think that's what we were going for is all. I just tweeted to the bar on table. There's our hashtag. Uh, all right. So uh, for topics this week. Um, so while, while we were just talking, since we were all making fun of Rudy Giuliani, uh, wh where do we even start with that story? Now, now we, everybody talked about hair dye, but at least one of the late night comedians would say maybe it was just Merlot leaking from his pores. So had we, had we considered that possibility? Well, the New York Times did a whole like story about it where they talked to like stylists and hairstylists stuff. And they were like, no, it probably wasn't hair dye. It was probably like eyeliner or mascara or something. Or yeah. Yeah, I, I think maybe maybe he like colored a sideburns or something. So 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 yeah. there's like a whole there's a whole industry of like stories now that are devoted to trying to figure out what, what was going on there. We'll never know the truth. I just saw a TikTok of Giuliani too. I'm, I'm now I'm on TikTok. It's a little pathetic, but where they showed him at that same conference, I think, wipe, take a handkerchief out of his pocket, wipe his nose, fold it outward so that the part that he just wiped and blown his nose into is in the outside, and then he wiped his whole face off <laughs> with a part that he'd blown his nose into and put it in his pocket, and he looked sick. I wonder if there was a reason he was sweating so much, and it might not have just been the lights. What if he he might have COVID? I don't know, but. Anyway, he just sort of fell apart at that thing. <laughs> good, good. If that gets traction, I feel like TikTok is getting double banned by the current administration now. <laughs> yeah, this is well. We won't have to. This is we just planted Giuliani on TikTok to fool the Chinese government uh, since they're monitoring everything that goes on there, right? His most recent um, filing, he asked for. Uh, he wants like 1.2 million ballots sent to him, sent to them. Uh, it, so it's an e-discovery story, sort of, uh, he, or a discovery story anyway. He wants a 1.2 million ballots sent to him, and then he's, according to the footnote, then he'll take a sample and count them and decide, based on that sample, to tell the state who actually won. Um, apparently, uh, no one's really going along with this idea that the solution is to outsource the winner to him. But uh, that is certainly what he's after. Uh, and if you're uh, in the discovery biz, you might soon be able to help him, I suppose. And then yeah. what, what I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna change topic, go for it. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, there's a legal tech angle with the court tech of it all as well, considering that AT&T dropped the hearing on the very first day. There were 4,000 people signed up for the call, AT&T for whatever tech reason, couldn't keep it going and then everything had to be postponed as they were trying to scramble and ended up getting 8,000 people back on the call. Um, I thought it was particularly interesting. This is a federal court and you would think that they would have uh, things in place for especially high profile litigation like this. Um, it kind of didn't make sense to me that it wasn't live stream or live broadcasted in some way to the general public as well. Um, Victoria had a really good piece for us talking with them about kind of their tech issues. But this, especially as everybody's going remote and there are virtual trials, could be something we see for high profile cases moving forward. You know, actually, um, I wrote a post this week on <clears throat> the perils of trying to do court proceedings in a hybrid fashion where some people are actually present and everybody else participates uh, virtually. And, and it's, it's a real problem. I, I'm not talking about sort of um, everyday sort of uh, motions and hearings, but for an arbitration or a trial, you know, you can't have, it's very difficult to have everybody on equal footing if 
if somebody are some of them are present and some of them aren't. And so what you have to do, I discovered, is you, you really have to set up a number of cameras and a number of microphones so that whenever somebody talks, that there's a camera on that person when, when, and, and you have to set up mechanisms to see the documents. And it's, it's quite a complicated process because then you have to mix, you have to have a mixer and you have to have some technicians that know how to balance all those things. And so it, you know, the, the problem of course is we're, we're backlogging so many trials these days because for obvious reasons. And, you know, at some point we're either going to have to make a decision to do those virtually uh, or keep postponing them until the pandemic is is over, or suggest that we do them in a hybrid fashion. But that raises all sorts of complications because if it's not all equal, then I don't want to participate online. I want to be there in person. If I'm there in person, it complicates the whole thing. So it's uh, you know trying to to do hybrid type hearings. I think is going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult in conferences too. You know, you hear a lot of people say, "Oh, when we this is over, we'll always have a hybrid here, a hybrid conference." But all the audio visuals for that will be complicated as well. So I don't know that we where we're going to end up when um, when we can have some in-person proceedings and and still have a virtual component. I, th I thought your post was really interesting uh, because it, it left me wondering why do they have to be equal? I mean, the, the physical trials were never perfect um, presentation forums for the people, the, the audience at the trial. I mean, uh, some courtrooms were set up where you'd be able to see documents projected on a monitor, but in most courtrooms, you still you don't get to see the documents that are being talked about. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, a Zoom trial is almost a better forum for the audience because you can actually see you can see the witness's face right there you can you can you know see the documents projected up on the screen um but but what's wrong if there's a hybrid presentation where so the people who choose to go to the courtroom don't get the same experience as well, the people on zoom the people on zoom get a different experience than the Steve, people i just want I, I just want to add, I'd throw in just another example of, of wh why these hybrids, for me, it's less about the audience and more about the core participants, making sure they're, they have the, um, that they're being presented uh, correctly and clearly. Um, so witnesses, the litigants, experts, um, so that, you know, a defense witness doesn't come in um, super fuzzy and, um, poor connections when um, a prosecution expert comes in super high quality. And, you know, I mean, those things can, can impart some, some unintentional cues uh, for um, the judge and the jury uh, potentially. Yeah. Um, and I, sorry, the, and the only, the analogy that I kept thinking of when I was um, thinking about Steve's post is that um, a lot of schools are going to these hybrid models. It's really difficult for the teacher to balance the re remote participants with the in-person. And these are students, especially like elementary age students. That's a really tough balance to do. You know, it's one thing for a college professor to do that where they're live streaming um, and lecturing. But, you know, when you have a lot of participation and needs and, um, and you need to have, uh, you need to pay attention to the to the people in front of you as equally as the people remotely, that's, that's trickier. And, and to get your, to, to your point, Bob, I, I think 
Yes, it's it's true that if everybody's in person, access may not be equal. If everybody's online, access might not be equal. But if you have some that can be there and some who can't be there, the ones who can't be there might be tempted to say, well, well look, I'm at a disadvantage, so I want to be present in the courtroom. And now you might have, you know, 30 people in a in a, in a COVID situation, wanting to be in the courtroom and the judge, what's the judge to do? Got to delay the trial or, or order everybody online or order everybody in the courtroom. It's, it's a dilemma. And Molly gets to a good point. I mean, there's a lot of sort of equipment kind of things that are necessary and technical kind of things to make that flow smooth. So nobody's due process rights, for example, are impaired in any way. Yeah. And honestly, I'm thinking more beyond COVID if we, if there's such a thing uh, to where we get kind of get where we're able to get back to normal in court proceedings. And the question of do, do we want to get back to normal at that point? Do we want to continue to have uh, both online broadcast and live uh, proceedings in the courtroom? There was a great experiment a few years ago in Massachusetts uh, out of that Harvard ran, I think, out of a small, out of a, a district court in Massachusetts, uh, putting all their proceedings online. This was, you know, five, six years ago now. Uh, that that went really well in a lot of ways. But there were also most of the glitches were technical, but but some of the glitches were just things like people forgetting they're on camera and suddenly saying things <laughs> that they forget they have a mic on. Uh, you know, those kinds of things and and things that uh, shouldn't have been heard or, or uh, you know, uh, sidebar conferences that get broadcast that shouldn't have gotten broadcast and that sort of thing. Um, but I'd like to think that we when we get back to actually going into courtrooms, we continue to maintain. Um, you know, if nothing else, then for public accessibility, I think it's great that the public is able to sit in and watch so many of these proceedings now that before they would have had to trudge down to a courtroom, maybe it's not even near them and they can watch it. The Giuliani trial, you know, technology aside, the telephone connection aside, I mean, that was a great example of something that had a lot of public interest. Well, and there's lots of convenience factors for everybody when you go virtually not the least of which is the jurors. As I think we've talked about before, I mean, we, we tend to forget these poor jurors that have to travel you know, to a downtown facility and spend however many days it takes for very little compensation and have their entire lives disrupted. And a virtual component of that might make the whole thing for them, who are really the most important players in the room, right? <laughs> for them, uh, much easier. So I, I think we we have uh, we uh, have this like wonderful uh, segues because we go from uh, Zach talking about the telephone trouble to you're talking about the hybrid proceedings to judges singing about the fact that they will be back. <laughs> Joe, do you want to tell us about that? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so fun uh, thing for anyone who hasn't seen it. It's on Above the Law as well as both, a few other outlets. Um, but down in Texas, they were having the virtual meeting of the Federal Bar Association, uh, and uh, Judge Elrod and uh, Judge Eskridge, um, Elrod of the Fifth Circuit and Judge Eskridge of the um, Southern District of Texas, uh, decided that a, a way in which they could lighten the mood uh, for the poor people who are watching this thing virtually uh, and still kind of, I guess not really in lockdown because Texas, but uh, if they're, you know, maybe smarter than their government in lockdown in Texas. And so what they did is they they put together parody lyrics uh, to Hamilton's song and performed it and they killed it. Uh, just, I am not a 
I am not a big fan of uh, bad karaoke attempts to make jokes, and they weren't. They were very good. Uh, they, I, I thought he in particular stole the show. He kind of embodied the character uh, from the original uh, while he was doing it. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, you should take some time to go watch this. I guess I can put it in the chat for everybody. Uh, oh, actually, yeah, somebody did there. Yeah, Thank did. you. Yep. yep, Nikki did it. All right, yeah. No, it was a lot of fun. Um, just saying that they'll, uh, you know, they'll be back. But they do talk about legal tech in there. There's, a, I think, one of the better, clever lines is that it's not all doom and gloom. We'll just see you over Zoom, is what the judges were telling all the pra <laughs> practitioners. And uh, yeah, very good. Yeah, I mean, if I were ever to do a music video, you are not the person I would send it to for a critical review. So uh, that, no, we that do says this. a lot. <laughs> At, a, at Above the Law, we do this uh, annual contest, the Law Review, spelled V-U-E. Uh, a lot of law schools have these performances every year where they do this sort of thing, and they send uh, the law schools send us videos of their best submissions, and we judge them. And I've gotten something of a reputation as the mean one because I, I really <laughs> think most of them aren't good and aren't funny, uh, but this was fantastic. Yeah. And plus, what, what was the law firm that you guys trashed for years? Was it? I, I think it was a Boston, a large uh, Boston law firm that got trashed for years for its uh, bad music video or something. Oh well, that wasn't even a video. That was just a theme song, and uh, and it got so bad that they like they they tried to sue us for like putting the in the YouTube of them singing it on the website and everything. It was really ridiculous. But, but yeah, yeah, you're That's everyone's a winner there. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> Everyone's a winner at Nixon Peabody. <laughs> um, so another way in which there's been sort of a, uh, a uh, convergence of different stories uh, in the last couple of weeks, I think, is with regard to legal tech marketplaces. And a couple of us have had stories this week uh, that relate to that. Uh, I wrote way back in October about uh, the launch of this thing called the Legal Tech Hub, which was... Uh, 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 Nikki Shaver and Chris Ford, who are husband and wife team, launched this uh, Legal Tech Hub, which is a, a pretty ambitious process to create a directory of uh, pretty much all the legal tech uh, products in the world, at least all of those uh, of interest to uh, larger law firms and corporate legal departments. Uh, but over the last couple of weeks, there's been a couple of more stories about not exactly legal tech hubs, but legal tech marketplaces of, of one kind or another. The one the one I wrote about was the uh, Thomson Reuters launch this week uh, of this marketplace, which they are, are describing as an online store where users can come and actually sort of demo and try out um, legal tech products and services before buying them. Uh, and then uh, potentially uh, then go ahead and I guess buy them. And uh, you might think this is just Thomson Reuters products. It's not, but it, as I understand it, it is all of the products are, are applications or add-ons that work with Thomson Reuters products. So uh, for many of them in particular are, are add-ons or, or integrations for HiQ uh, or elite the uh, three elite three e uh, business management um, product, and uh, I thought that was kind of interesting because there is you know one of the big stories over the last year has been the launch of of Rain in Court, which is a whole other approach to uh, trying to provide. Uh, um, a, 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 well, they, they were calling themselves the app store of law, I think is what, what they've been describing themselves. And, and they're actually getting ready to roll out a kind of a version of that that's similar in the sense that 
companies will be able to kind of try before you buy uh, for the apps that are there. They'll have kind of sandbox, sandbox versions of some of these products. So uh, before a company has to sort of really commit to something and go in and kind of play around with a, with a sandbox version of it. Um, and then, uh, so uh, I know Zach brought it up, uh, but actually Victoria wrote about it. I don't know if one or, one or the other you wanna talk about what, what Auric has done uh, in that regard. Yeah, Auric last week, they um, they started, I think it was a year ago, their own internal like dashboard and well, directory of like legal tech products that were available. And they decided to um, make that available externally as well for clients. And they did say a few like Aura created um, legal tech will be included, but it's like 600 platform. They said there's maybe like 20 um, Aura created software there. And they said it's pretty much just software that will help lawyers, um, not general tech like a Zoom or BlueJeans or something like that, something that provides pretty general, just pro um, helps provide legal services. And I asked them about updating it and they think, and they said it was a lot more easier to keep updated when you have like a platform, like their observatory, which that's the name of their directory of legal tech. Is that it's a lot more easier to keep track of all the legal tech companies reaching out to them, sending them press releases saying, hey, you know, look at my um, software that I just um, created. So they said it's really good for managing that type of information. And of course, like you can submit like if you want to be included in the directory and they'll go over the product. And I think like one of the main things with the directory and when I looked over it, they, they emphasize like you have to explain how this actually helps corporate clients. They said that's something that they heard a lot from um, corporate legal departments that are looking into leveraging legal tech is really hard to figure out what does the legal tech actually do and how is it different. And I think kind of like getting lost in like that um, buzzwords and marketing terms, um, that's what Oryx said they're trying to cut through and um, provide like a resource so you can have access and reach out to legal tech companies if you're interested in their software. So I think it's interesting, especially because Oryx said there's no like point solution out there. So you have so many tech and software that says like, oh, we can do this, we can do that. And not that all in one platform that you need that type of directory to help you figure out like what's out there. Yeah. One, of the, one, one of the other interesting things about the Thomson Reuters announcement was the apparent collaboration they're doing with KPMG for some sort of consulting activities. And I don't know if it is relating to supply of or purchase of legal technology or, or exactly what, but I um, thought that was kind of interesting. Once again, the big fours gradually inching their way into the legal market in the U.S. Yeah, that was interesting. And they were not uh, very explicit about that, but I mean, what they said is that it's uh, uh, Primarily, that, that KPMG is building applications internally. Their KPM Legal Services, or whatever they call their legal group, is building applications internally to run on the HiQ platform. And so, I think those are. It's going to be applications, not services, so much that they're going to be included in that marketplace, as I understood it. But I'm not. I can't say I'm positive about that. Yeah, it was not. It was not totally clear. That just yeah. the interesting thing to me was the kind of the yeah. combination of the. To and KPMG's yeah. increasing involvement at various levels in the legal ecosystem. <laughs> yeah. If yeah. I remember correctly, I think KPMG and HiQ had had uh, brokered a deal to share some services and have a partnership even before they were purchased by Thomson Reuters. So I think that this is just a little bit of an extension of that. Oh, okay. 
Um, yeah, I don't know if there's, a, a, I mean, I think, I think part of what this reflects, I would imagine, is just the, the uh, growing universe of, of legal technology products. Uh, and I think all of these things that we're talking about, the Auric thing, the, the Thomson Reuters thing, the uh, other directory that I talked about that Nikki Shaver launched, are all kind of focused at big law, big corporate legal departments. Uh, and part, I think part of the problem is there are just so many products out there now. And, and I think uh, the, uh, those responsible for uh, making purchasing decisions are having more and more trouble sorting through them all and making decisions about them all and, and even figuring out what the universe is and what's out there. And uh, I think there's a real need for these things. But uh, as Molly commented, I think when we were talking before the show started, that the trick with these is not just launching them, but keeping them current and keeping them up to date. And that's a real challenge. Yeah, but I, I like the try before you buy thing because, you know, I, I, I mean, it, it, I, I can see how it can be intimidating for a company, especially if they don't, you know, if they don't, you know, if, if this is like their first foray or they're just dipping their toe in, it's like, you know, I don't know when the next time they'll be able to go to a conference is, but, you know, the next time they go to a conference and they go to the expo, expo floor and they talk to all these different vendors, you know, all these vendors have these wonderful products that'll, that'll do everything that they want. And, change change everything and save them all kinds of money and do this and do that and do that and it's like well okay so if they all do these things then you know what's the difference right so um i mean i can i can see why that would be something that would would, would catch on with um with uh you know these various companies but um you know like your like your conference girlfriend bob just said in the chat it'll be interesting to see what you know the statistics will be like in a few months and so i think um yeah that would that, that will bear watching especially to see if you know they keep up to keep up to date with these things, like like what Molly said, and you know uh, what you know what everyone else was talking about with just regards to keeping these things up to date and, what, and whether or not these whether or not they're even catching on. I was trying to figure out whether you're being sarcastic. If only there were some technology that would help me with that. Well, um, <laughs> so killing it today. That's a segue. All right. So yeah, I I, th I, I saw this because we have talked a little bit about this in the past about how um, you know AI has difficulty trying to determine sarcasm in you know text and you know images and text and images and whatnot. And so you know there was an article that came out this week looking at how I guess um, you know researchers in China have um, have you know developed have developed this uh, way of looking at text text and images together to determine whether or not there's sarcasm there. And I mean, I, I mainly picked it because I love the headline. It said, it said AI researchers make a sarcasm, um, uh, make it made a sarcasm detection model. And it's so impressive. Um, and, and just reading through the article, I didn't, I didn't know if the whole article was meant to be sarcastic or if it was just a headline. So maybe, so maybe this proves the difficulty of detecting sarcasm because even I was having trouble <laughs> with it at times. But I think it was, I think, I think, I think that this new method was a 2.7 improvement on the, on, on, on the prior one. I'm just like, that doesn't seem like, like like a major breakthrough. It doesn't seem like a lot. So maybe the whole article was meant to be sarcastic, and therefore to kind of illustrate the difficulties in really determining because because if, if, if humans have trouble with it, then how how can how can machines uh, be able to discern discern these things? So so I, I mean I, I I just thought it was a very good kind of possibly meta article about sarcasm detection in general and how to, how it still continues to befuddle, uh, you know even even the most advanced AI. I feel like we should have more meta articles in legal tech in general, like just have a document creation software, just literally create an article about itself and just see if anybody can tell the difference. I think that'd be fun. 
I did once. I think I might have even mentioned this on the show once. But when one my one of my not not one of my sons, not the one who helps produce the show, but my other son was playing around with some AI software, and I I gave I gave him. Uh, a text file with all of the columns I'd ever written for above the law and asked if he could generate a column for me without me having any input. And uh, it came out as gobbledygook, which is probably an accurate and, and representation. It, <laughs> and, it, and it's the highest trafficked column on the history of above the law. No, just... <laughs> no I didn't publish it. I did not publish it, but uh, I would like to try it again sometime. Uh, so, uh, okay. From sarcasm to, I don't know, avatar conferences. Well, I have, because I, <laughs> all right, everybody buckle record, up <laughs> because I sound like a broken record. I also submitted an article that I'd written as well. That was not about avatar conferences. So I, you know, I actually like a legit thing about email and the ethical issues people need to think yeah, we about. We can do that. We can do that. So, can I like talk about that really quickly so I don't sound like a psychotic avatar focused <laughs> person? <laughs> um, so I wrote an article on my Sui Generous, um, well, the, for the daily record that I republished on the Sui Generous um, column. And it's, it, I, it just caught my eye because it, it was a blog post written by Florida's Ethics Council. It wasn't an official opinion, um, but it talked about some of the issues that you encounter with email when you use it to communicate with clients and also opposing counsel. Um, this has been uh, addressed before by other ethics bars, but at the end of the day, it just highlighted one more issue with email, uh, which is that when you CC clients, you run into two different ethical issues. One is that the clients may reply all and inadvertently disclose confidential information. The other is that you put opposing counsel in the bind of possibly impermissibly communicating with someone represented by counsel once you CC them in if they should reply all. So it just it just is another example of even when you're not talking about the security issues with email, there are other issues of confidentiality that may arise. And it's just one more reason why now that we're all working remotely and are relying on our electronic communications even more, it's better to just switch to some sort of secure, uh, more secure way to communicate. I always say client portals, but there's obviously encrypted email as well, but then you still run into some of those CCing issues. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and timely, but I also, uh, Rick George is, uh, is a lawyer in Florida. He has a blog called Future Lawyer. And of course it caught my eye when he pub published a short post talking about how he thinks the future of conferences are avatars. And I was so excited because that's what I think they are. And then Steve, uh, was, uh, Steve was kind enough to send me a link to, there's actually a legal tech conference coming up it's going to be avatar based. So I, and it's free. You can sign up. So of course I signed up. Um, it's, and I'll put a, a link to that in case anyone wants to attend it. It's, you know, e-discovery is not my jam, but this isn't, e <laughs> it's avatar and it's legal tech. So I'm there. It's uh, edrmsexpo.com. It's on uh, December 3rd and you, it's an, and it is an avatar um, based conference. So, essentially you create an avatar and then you get to wander around and you're with your avatar. And listen, the reason I think this is so exciting is because it gamifies conferences. Right now we're all zoomed out. We stare at a screen all day. Then you go to conferences and you stare at a screen all day and sure you get to kind of talk to people sometimes at the conference, but this way it gamifies it. It makes it fun. You have this avatar that you have to create 
and it just shakes the experience up. And then you, my, in theory, this is what I'm thinking. I want to experience it. You walk around and you can talk to people. You can just pick random people, walk up to them. And I just feel like that's kind of more interesting than sitting there and joining a Zoom room and seeing a bunch of names. And so I'm super excited. And I honestly think that it seems like there's a light at the end of the tunnel here with these vaccines that may be coming out. So maybe we won't be in this for next year, but at least for the next six months, this is going to be an issue. So why not shake these conferences up a little bit? And maybe it will be a way to have, you know, you may have a conference every year, so certain companies, but maybe sometimes you throw in a conference halfway through the year that's just an online avatar conference. It's a way to stay connected with your customers, with people in the legal tech community without throwing a full-blown conference, you know, all the time. So I think it's a, I think it's exciting and hopefully some other people will be there with, uh, with me and Steve. Steve, I think you said you're going, right? So. Yeah, I'm going. And I actually went to the, to the uh, developer site, mm-hmm. the people that are putting it on and kind of looked at it and it, it really does kind of look like a video game, like the legend of Zelda where you got you push the little thing and the little gal runs around and does certain things. So it'll be really interesting. I think it's kind of got some, some, uh, uh, potential, you know, not, I don't know about the kind of the presentation end of things that seemed a little, little flunky to me or, but, but the exhibit hall kind of thing that, that could work, you know, is that using the same tech that Rick Georges have written about the same platform or is that, I think it's, I think it's different. Don't, don't you, Nikki? I think it looked like, I think it's different. Yeah. I think it's a different, there's a quite, there's a handful of them out there. And they all seem to do the same thing. You can walk up to other people, interact with them or talk to people at your table while there's a talk going on and also have these breakout groups where everybody like walks into the room. And, but you know, there's a reason they talk about gamifying things. And this is the perfect time to gamify online legal conferences since we don't have any other option and make it just a little bit, because I, I know that people are zoomed out I understand from talking to um, people in the industry that like CLE numbers are starting to decline because during the initial quarantine, everybody was taking CLEs because they had nothing else to do. They thought they'd get their credits in. And at this point, everyone zoomed out and they're just tired of looking at a screen all the time. And that doesn't bode well for the conferences over the next six months, I don't think. So. I was just about to tell people they should go watch the Zoom video I recorded with you earlier this week talking about legal ethics in the time of COVID. But I'm going to retract that suggestion right now. Because... Well, I mean, that was fascinating. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, that actually was interesting. We talked, that was actually fun because we talked about things like, uh, you know, can you, some of the things we talked about in the show before, but can a lawyer resign from, re, re, uh, withdraw from a case because of fear of COVID or uh, um, uh, what was the other? <laughs> I'm blanking on the other. Anyway, that's up on my blog as of today. And you can find my interview with Nikki there. It was all my above my um, the ABA journal column wrap up from all the columns I'd written about over the past year. Wasn't or were you talking about ethics specific? I'm not sure. Doesn't matter. We talked about we, that. Our, our, inter- our interview <laughs> was both ethics and essential work from home technology that you, everybody should know about. <laughs> so, um, so uh, Molly, what, what do you got this week? Um, so I just uh, kind of along the lines of some of the things we've, we've talked about already today, uh, there was a, a future of the courts um, post-pandemic commission in New York, and they came out with um, some recommendations. And, and I think this kind of goes to the, to the point you were making, Bob. It, it wasn't looking at um, some of these bigger 
case changes, but they were looking at, you know, um, implementing things that like small claims, online dispute resolution for small claims courts, uh, you know, things like that, that we're seeing in other places uh, that have already been tested or um, sh shown some really good use cases. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. It's just a recommendation at this point, but, um, you know, it, it, it comes from um, a pretty strong constituency. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, that'll move things forward partly out of necessity <laughs> as backlogs are dealt with and, and the pandemic um, issues continue on. Um, and then back to conferences, uh, Caroline's not here to talk about it, but she hosted a, a webinar, uh, Legal IT Insider with um, ILTA on um, lessons learned from virtual conferences. And there was a lot of discussion of, about the things we've just been talking about, about fatigue and engagement and, you know, and, it, and some of it goes down to, comes back down to a lot of the things you, you deal with when you're um, putting together a story or a, a marketing campaign. Um, you know, what is it that we're putting a conference on for in the first place? You know, coming back to that, to that, you know, baseline and rethinking how to make that happen in a virtual environment. And then, you know, the things that come along, you know, to add engagement and, you know, make sure that education and networking are, are core, that vendors get the um, support they, they want. Um, what I thought was interesting is that um, a lot of the data that ILTA has been collecting is that um, is really still focused on the education component. So even though, you know, we hear a lot of talk about engagement and bells and whistles, uh, you know, to me, it seems like the focus should still be on how you create a really strong education component that's meaningful and seamless. Um, and so, so there was a lot of discussion about, about that. One of the things, so I attended a, um, most of a, a conference this week put on by Pro Bono Net and some partners called uh, Decolonizing Justice. And one of the things they did, um, and Stephen um, has seen this in, in uh, other conferences, is they had a live note taker who, um, it wasn't an AI product, which also exists to do transcriptions live so that you can follow along. But it was a somebody who was taking notes, really nice highlight notes so that I found it incredibly useful because sometimes you get engaged and you miss something somebody said or or what happened to me a few times, I had to take a call, duck out, um, and then I got to go look through the notes and then was totally um, back on track for the Q&A later. I understood what was being discussed. I thought that was really useful. And the more I thought about it, the more I appreciated how if I what they'll do at the end of this conference is send everybody the videos. Well, who actually watches those after a conference? A week-long conference, are you really going to go sit through or filter through even the one session you were interested in? I don't know, but I would totally skim notes, like, right. you know, crib sheet notes. So yeah. I thought that was really neat. And they and they also did simul, um, simultaneous uh, uh, translation in Spanish for most of the key programs. Yeah, I've seen that used. Victoria just won right my Skype room, if anybody noticed. I've seen that used. Thank you, Courtney. <laughs> We've got multiple people speaking at the same, you know, in a like a panel discussion or a discussion with a big group. To have a note taker is really cool because you 
you know, you can't keep track of who's talking fast enough if you're, if you're trying to do it yourself. Yeah. I, I, um, a couple of notes on that one. I've, I've heard talk that there's a, a group uh, possibly getting together of, of vendors to meet and talk about what to do about virtual trade shows and, and not invite any of the organizers of virtual trade shows to that meeting, uh, try and come up with some kind of a vendor approach because a lot of vendors are very unhappy with the, the state of affairs. Um, and uh, another sort of small world or segue or something uh, issue is that, that uh, New York report, that New York commission that you talked about, Molly, um, it, the, uh, the, there's a couple of different committees to it. And, and I'm actually on one of them. There's a also a separate technology working group that's working through uh, looking at how the New York courts should uh, redesign uh, their, their websites or, or have a better web presence than they do now. And the whole reason I'm on that committee is because I went to Nikki Black's uh, dinner at Legal Tech New York that, that my case holds every year and happened to sit next to a person who's the chair of this committee. And uh, next thing I know, I'm roped into a committee uh, on the New York courts, even though I'm based in Massachusetts. So that makes a lot of sense. I think uh, I know who that was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do. Um, what else? Do we have anything else? Um, yeah, I've got, yeah. I've got something. I think we'd, <clears throat> we would be remiss if we didn't note that yesterday was the 18th anniversary of Bob Ambrosia's blog uh, that got many of us, certainly me, got started with reading, reading that blog and being energized by it. And, um, you know, I, I, one of the first shows, one of the first times I was introduced to Bob, he was described as the godfather of legal tech. So <laughs> I think I think 18 years at doing anything, but particularly doing a blog, is got, ought to be celebrated and congratulated, and it's certainly worth worth noting by everybody. So thanks, Bob, for 18 years of hard work, and hope you got 18 years more in you. <laughs> it's the best argument for avatars yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at least I could look 20 years younger. But thank you, Steve. I appreciate that, and it's been a lot of fun doing it. But uh, yeah, my Italian heritage finally gets me something. Um, yeah, was there anything else that people want to talk about? I, feel like well, it was I just I threw here. something yeah. into the um, chat. Uh, my ABA journal column in December is going to be about the top five legal tech stories. And I sort of crowdsourced that already on social media. But I had intended to ask all my co-panelists, and I'm certainly interested in obviously what the, any attendees think. So if anyone has any votes, feel free to either let me know offline or in the chat or otherwise. I'm just trying to get a sense of what the community in general thinks in the legal tech space thinks were the biggest stories. Make sure yeah. I cover all my bases. Yeah, <laughs> I will look forward to reading that. I'm already getting, do you guys all get the, the, P, the pitches from PR people saying, if you're doing a future of what's gonna happen in 2021 story, let us know and we'll get you some expert who's gonna tell you. I hate future stories myself. I, I like retrospective stories because, you can, you know, that that's real. You can talk about it and, and, and look at it. I, I hate uh, stories trying to prognosticate about what's coming down the pike over the next year. To be clear, mine's the top five of 2020. Yeah. So I'm no, just, I know, yeah, okay. I know. I, no, I'm, right. I'm just that. interested in 
Well, that's yeah. I think uh, and, and I'll be doing the same. My next story, my next story that I was going to sign you was going to be the top five of 2021. That's due the month of next month. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, five, it's five, hard to know. see how the how the top legal tech story of 2020 isn't the coronavirus. By the way, somehow, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And did we all Cor- think Courtney in- says future stories are written so we can laugh about them 10 years later, which is so true. <laughs> and didn't we all think in December of last year, like 2020, the start of a new decade, everything's going to be great. 20- and just look at what's been. Yeah. I'm starting to. This? I'll throw in a future prediction that um, on John Broder's um, uh, uh, questions that uh, UPL is going to be front and center. Uh, for uh, 2021 again, uh, especially with uh, a lot of the regulatory changes in Utah, Arizona, Minnesota. We're going to see it now in New York with some of these recommendations. Florida's coming along. Uh, so I, you know, I think these are all going to be issues that we'll either see in sandboxes or coming up in litigation. I, I think that's a safe bet. Sort of like that the Patriots will be in the Super Bowl. Um, I don't. <laughs> my Eagles are pretty bad this year, so you know. I don't think okay. he, I don't think either of you should be watching TV right now because uh, <laughs> it doesn't look good for either. <laughs> yeah. All right. As uh, a Steelers right, fan, yeah. on the other hand. Yeah. No, right. no, I, I, I wore the Steelers are peaking a little too soon. I, 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 I think probably- that's true. I actually have no, uh, I would not put money on them being in the Super Bowl. So. I agree. I actually am thinking the same thing. All right. We are not going to be here next week. We are going to take the uh, day after Thanksgiving off, uh, but uh, we will be back uh, the week after that, whatever date that is. I have no idea. Uh, and I uh, hope to see you all back then. And I uh, hope you all have a great Thanksgiving to the extent you're able to do that. Uh, and uh See you back in two weeks. Thanks, everybody, for being part of it today. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Happy holidays. Stay safe.